Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. And welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, January 27th. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Ken Cook. Ken is the co-founder and president of the Environmental Working Group, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. The mission of the Environmental Working Group is to use the power of public information to protect public health and the environment. EWG specializes in providing useful resources consumers while simultaneously pushing for national policy change and strives to protect the most vulnerable segments of the human population, children, babies, and infants in the womb, from health problems attributed to a wide array of toxic contaminants. Ken, thank you for joining us on Voice America. Oh, Terry, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Ken, please give our listeners a more specific idea of the scope of what the Environmental Working Group does. We conduct research on a fairly wide range of environmental topics. We've uh, performed studies on the uh, farm subsidy system and how the way we're spending our farm subsidy money is causing environmental problems and also uh, how it's so very unfair to small and medium-sized family farmers because we reward the largest operators. We've done work on public lands out west looking at the impacts of hard rock mining on things like the Grand Canyon and other valuable special places uh, that we need to be protecting. But the most important work we've probably done in recent years, and certainly the most relevant to your audience, is the work we've done looking at the impacts of toxic chemicals on health. And there we've uh, fielded a team of really impressive experts. We have a medical doctor, a chemist, an immunologist, uh, engineers, Uh, lots of public health experts on our staff, and they are dedicated to try and do two things, basically. One, provide uh, cutting-edge research that demonstrates what individuals and families can do to protect themselves from toxic chemicals and consumer products around the home and so forth so that their families uh, are given uh, an additional measure of protection uh, from the impacts that those chemicals might have on infants, children, even adults. Secondly, that same research is designed to try and make the case that we have a lot of holes in our safety net protecting us from toxic chemicals, protecting our health. And our largest objective in the coming years is to try and establish a new safety net that really will be protective. I guess we have to backtrack a little bit. Um, That sounds excellent, but let's define what qualifies something as a toxic substance. Well, that's a very good question. We all know about uh, various toxic substances that that are discussed widely. Uh, We had a headline in in this morning's Washington Post about children with elevated levels of lead from drinking tap water that was contaminated as a result of a change in our water treatment system here in Washington, D.C. But we all know uh, about PCBs, uh, various pesticides like uh, DDT, dioxin, uh, a breakdown product uh, of uh, various waste processes uh, from incinerators and other sources. We know about asbestos uh, and so forth and so on. These toxic chemicals, toxic substances, are basically broadly defined as any substance that would cause an adverse biological effect. Some effects are more serious than others. 
uh, and there's a wide range of effects. Uh, a toxic substance might cause cancer. It might cause neurological problems. Uh, it might be contributing to uh, elevated risk of birth defects and so forth and so on. But by and large, the, what, what we know about toxic substances uh, is really just the tip of the iceberg as, as to what we should know because we have so many ways in which we're now beginning to understand that various physiological symptoms uh, are manifested, various systems are affected by different toxic chemicals at different levels, and some people are more vulnerable than others. Which ones? And, and can you correlate the, the systems and the symptoms and the toxins? Well, that's a, 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 there's a great deal of, uh, of work underway there now. Uh, just to give you a, a couple of simple examples, we, we know that uh, mercury exposure uh, can cause a pretty serious adverse impacts uh, to uh, the nervous system, uh, both of animals and of uh, laboratory animals and of people. Lead, likewise, can have a very significant impact on the nervous system. Uh, chemicals such as the chemical used in uh, the manufacture of Teflon, PFOA, that's in all of us now. We know from uh, biomonitoring studies, a, a new area of science that's establishing just what levels of pollution are not in the air and water and land, but what levels of pollution are in people. That is telling us now that there are some surprising uh, physiological effects of, uh, of, of chemicals like PFOA on our bodies. They could affect our, our hormone systems, our immune systems. What we're really discovering, Terry, is that we have cast our net too narrowly in trying to understand just how many systems in our bodies could be affected by toxic chemicals. For many years, the focus was, and this is understandable, the focus was on cancer, trying to understand what chemicals might be causing various types of cancer. And, of course, that's, that itself is a, uh, as a disease has many, many different forms. Now people are looking at much more subtle and sophisticated impacts, such as perhaps we uh, are seeing uh, some of the changes in sexual development in, uh, in children as a result of uh, toxic chemical exposures. We see that in wildlife, uh, fish that have been, in effect, feminized, male fish that uh, develop female organs as adults, uh, probably as a result of being exposed to toxic chemicals coming out of sewage treatment plants. Well, what is happening with some of those same chemicals that we're uh, now certain are, are in people because of biomonitoring studies that have found them. So it, 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 the whole world of toxicology, uh, the impact of toxic substances on our health, that is exploding. And one of the reasons it is exploding is a newfound understanding that it's really not nature versus nurture. It's not one or the other. What we're coming to understand is that there's a, a combination of uh, an impact between what you might be exposed to and what by virtue of your genetic endowment, what you bring to the party, as it were, genetically, uh, that might make you specially vulnerable to uh, toxic chemicals. And in everyday life, we know that everyone uh, is not affected in the same way uh, as others. Uh, for example, uh, just at the simplest level, uh, we know that uh, some kids are very vulnerable to peanuts. They have an allergy to it. Well, there's a genetic basis for that. Uh, they're fine when they're not exposed to peanut oil or peanuts, but when they are exposed... Something is triggered. Well, if you just take that simple example and expand it and look at all the various chemical substances to which we could be exposed and all the variations in the human population where some people are more vulnerable than others, and we know this even from, from drug studies, uh, where some people have serious side effects to, very, uh, to the very drugs that everyone else can take, 
very, uh, with therapeutic effects and no side effects. Now that we understand that it's not nature versus nurture but an interaction of the two, we've completely changed our view about what's toxic and how we should be protective because we have to protect the most vulnerable when we find a, a group in the population that is, say, vulnerable to mercury or, or lead or, or heavy metals or other toxins. Well, Ken, that's wonderful information, and we can certainly uh, agree that there's an intersection of genetics plus environmental triggers, but some people might still choose to to argue that um, this could be a genetic, we could be seeing genetic epidemics or the rise in, in chronic diseases could be genetic. How do you really know that the upsurges are not due to genetics or due to better diagnosis on the part of physicians? Well, we know for a couple of reasons. One, uh, some of them are happening too quickly. Um, for example, uh, this is a, a one that's often brought up, uh, childhood brain cancer, uh, a fairly dramatic increase, 40% increase in childhood brain cancer between the mid-1970s uh, and the mid-1990s. Uh, we wouldn't expect that as a result of uh, genetic uh, change. We don't mutate as a species so quickly to suddenly develop that, such an increase in uh, childhood brain cancer as that. And moreover, it's unlikely uh, when you talk to pediatricians that this is uh, attributable in any significant measure to better diagnosis because when a kid has uh, a brain tumor, when a kid has brain cancer, pediatricians are pretty quick to be able to diagnose that. There's not much dispute about it. They might have differences in uh, describing the tumor's uh, uh, status until they are able to do additional studies, but if a kid has brain cancer, you know it. So this is true across a wide range of diseases. We're seeing uh, dramatic increases in some forms of uh, birth defects, hypospadias. Uh, this is a defect of, uh, that affects young boys, little baby boys, where the tip of the urethra does not come out at the end of the penis but somewhere along the shaft, and it requires surgery to fix. Undescended testicles, again, another major increase in that birth defect. Uh, we worry about it, of course, in the infant boys that suffer from it, but the other worrisome thing is it's a, a warning sign, a strong predictor of elevated risk of testicular cancer later in life. Again, uh, the increase in both of these diseases is not fundamentally related to better diagnosis or reporting. These are very easy things to see. What is probably happening, most people think, who, who work in the field, uh, is there's a, an exposure pattern uh, combined with a genetic predisposition for the children that are, are so exposed that probably is resulting in the elevated levels of this disease. I think people who hide behind genetics uh, and say that this is just genetics are really not facing the reality of modern science. I mean, tens of billions of dollars are being spent now by drug companies precisely because they know that if they can find genetic vulnerabilities that they can treat with drugs, uh, they will be able to have a multi-billion dollar uh, drug market uh, treating a disease by targeting the very people who are vulnerable to it. Well, that line of investment tells you a lot about what we now understand, which is it's not nature versus nurture. We are seeing uh, a new understanding of the combination of genetic predisposition and environmental triggers. And now the question is, which of those environmental triggers do we need to focus on? How do we find out which ones are more serious than others? And in the absence of being able to predict in every case just who individually might be vulnerable and who would not be, what we really want to do then is reduce the exposures. It's just common sense. 
Right. Well, isn't that line of research just allowing them to deflect from the real problems and allow government and industry to run amok? It, it does, and, and um, we, we were particularly concerned in the in the case of of, of autism, um, not just the uh, the way the uh, the government handled it, but uh, in particular the the conclusion that was uh, that was drawn by the Institute of Medicine uh, that uh, further research uh, was not needed. Uh, into uh, some of the causal relationships that seemed likely uh, between various uh, types of toxicants like uh, thimerosal or the vaccines themselves uh, and and autism. Uh, and specifically, this is what the committee said uh, uh, some, some years ago, uh, they said the committee cannot rule out, based on the epidemiological evidence, the possibility that vaccines contribute to autism in some small subset or very unusual circumstances. That's code word for saying some people may be more vulnerable than others. We happen to think it's not such a small subset at the Environmental Working Group. We're very concerned that uh, what we are seeing uh, with the, the rise in the diagnosis of autism is uh, increased exposures uh, to children that, uh, in the absence of those exposures, might not have exhibited uh, the symptoms of autism, might not have fallen on the spectrum of, uh, of the disease. And so our concern is that we not want to rule out the possibility that some of these exposures uh, combined with uh, predispositions in some children, uh, particularly uh, some boys, uh, is, is causing a, a crisis. What an excellent explanation, Ken. More of this fascinating information when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. 
If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Ken Cook, president and co-founder of the Environmental Working Group. And before the break, Ken, you had made some really great points. Um, You had alluded to the fact that it's not possible to have a genetic epidemic. You had cited uh, the example of childhood brain cancer, the rise in that. Um, And you had started talking about autism. And, again, let's just reemphasize, how do we know that the dramatic rise in autism can't be due to better diagnosis? Well, I mean, there are some obvious questions to, to ask. Um, uh, if, if the entire spectrum of, uh, of diseases that we characterize as, as autism uh, were, were the same as they were uh, 15 or 20 or 30 years ago, then uh, where, where are all the uh, severely autistic adults now that we would be expect to, uh, to, to see? Uh, where, where, where would that population be? Well, it's not there because the levels of autism in the population uh, across the spectrum in all likelihood are not as, uh, were not as high 10 or 15 or 20 years ago as they are now. And uh, the, the real question then becomes, well, why, why is there such a dramatic increase? No one really knows the answer, but it's becoming increasingly clear that you cannot assume uh, that uh, from a scientific standpoint, but that, that this is due to uh, a sudden genetic shift in the population that manifests itself uh, in, uh, in children and 60% of them boys uh, as some form of, uh, of autism. You can't assume uh, that there has been uh, an evolutionary impact so dramatic for one specific disease uh, that, uh, or, or set of diseases that, uh, that um, is explainable by by uh, genetics alone. This is an interaction between uh, the environment and uh, a vulnerable subpopulation. It happens to be tragically a very large subpopulation of people, and uh, we, we really don't know the answer. This is not the time to assume then that uh, we should stop uh, trying to figure out what, what the various uh, causes of it are. We should be redoubling our efforts to look into whether or not toxic chemical exposures might have given rise, might have triggered uh, this uh, very serious increase in, uh, in autism. And to be honest, uh, a lot of the debate that has become so heated over vaccines and thimerosal and so forth, uh, to me, uh, has, has been unfortunate in, in the way the scientific community, some in the scientific community have handled it, because we all recognize that there is a very distinct possibility that there's some combination of things that affects some children that uh, leads to the onset of, of autism. And unfortunately, when there is a reaction from the government and from officialdom to just uh, refuse to face the possibility that something we may have administered for some very good, well-intended reasons uh, to protect people from disease, 
may have had these adverse effects uh, in the form of, uh, of increasing the rates of autism. It's, it's a very plausible uh, scientific hypothesis, and I think even uh, the Institute of Medicine, among others, uh, acknowledged some years ago, even as they were uh, dismissing uh, the link to vaccines, they were acknowledging that there could be uh, a, a group, a subpopulation uh, in the population that, that was especially vulnerable. And that, that, uh, that I think, is the logical uh, conclusion to reach. Then the question is, well, what kinds of things should we prevent exposures for? Obviously, heavy metals for lots of other reasons are a bad idea uh, to have uh, kids exposed to. Uh, we don't want them exposed to lead. We don't want them expo- exposed to mercury or PCBs or any other neurotoxic agents. And there's some evidence that uh, uh, children who uh, come down with a, are diagnosed with autism uh, are, are um, in fact, perhaps um, uh, uniquely uh, vulnerable because of uh, metabolic pathways in their uh, physiology, again, genetically based, that um, make it difficult for them to to uh, protect themselves, their bodies to protect them uh, from uh, various types of heavy metals and other toxins that could, of course, be associated with the onset of, of autism. Ken, I really appreciate how you mentioned other examples. Um, there are, we know that there's a rise in the childhood brain cancer, as you said, uh, leukemia, and so the rise in autism isn't happening in a vacuum. And if we see all sorts of chronic diseases going up, then um, we have reason to believe that there can be environmental insults that can be triggering all of these things. So why should autism be treated as if it's in a vacuum and it's the only one uh, that, well, other people are saying, would be genetics only? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, it, uh, it just uh, stands to reason uh, that what we are experiencing here with these various increased uh, diseases and health problems what we're experiencing here is, a, again, a uh, uh, something new. And what's new is the vast array of toxic chemicals to which people are exposed, including uh, from the very earliest um, moments of life. Uh, we know that uh, babies uh, carry uh, hundreds of toxic chemicals into the world because they're exposed in the womb. Uh, the placenta, unlike what we thought not so very long ago, medical Experts, scientists thought the placenta might uh, filter out some of these chemicals, protect the, the developing baby. It turns out that's not the case for many chemicals. They get through, and when they do get through, uh, the uh, baby in the womb has not developed a uh, blood-brain barrier that they will have at three months and six months and eight months and, and older that helps filter out and protect them from uh, the, the brain tissue from being exposed, the brain cells from being exposed to toxic chemicals. We are understanding all of this now, but the real problem, Terry, is we have a such a weak safety net for some of these toxic industrial chemicals that they are getting through, not just uh, to to uh, to adults, but to babies in the womb, and they're getting through because we don't have adequate controls, don't do adequate testing before they come on the market for older chemicals that have been on for a long time. We still don't have adequate testing information about them. So one of the goals of the Environmental Working Group's research and advocacy program is let's, let's understand that. Let's make sure we get a system in place that starts uh, ensuring that before a child is exposed to a toxic chemical, uh, that we know for certain that those exposures are not going to cause a health problem. And until we know that, uh, we shouldn't be allowing those exposures. Well, let's back 
backtrack and break this uh, down into uh, smaller segments. Uh, how many toxic substances are actually used in the products that consumers use every day? You know, I grew up with better living through chemistry. Of course, we all did. TV every day, but how much are we really exposed to? Well, the, the truth of the matter is no one really knows. We know that tens of thousands of chemicals are used in commerce. Uh, we don't know uh, exactly how many of them end up in people because we've only begun recently, comparatively recently, studying uh, the uh, chemicals that pollute human beings. Uh, this uh, science of biomonitoring, which is something the Environmental Working Group has uh, emphasized in our research program, which is basically testing blood, uh, hair, urine, uh, other bodily fluids for the presence of toxic chemicals, it's really still in its infancy. But what we're finding is startling. Uh, some of the studies that we've done of adults and, uh, and, and infants shows hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of toxic chemicals at any one time. There might be several hundred carcinogens in a human being, several hundred neurotoxins. And that is true also of babies even in the womb. So we, we've done such a poor job of controlling exposures to these chemicals that they end up in us, uh, and th they're worrisome individually, we don't study them or regulate them at all in combination. So you might have a baby uh, with uh, an elevated mercury level, an elevated lead level, levels of PCBs and other neurotoxins. We have no idea really what impact that might have on that developing child's nervous system uh, in combination. Sometimes we don't even really have very good information about what an individual chemical's impact might be on a baby. So uh, unfortunately what we've done is allowed uh, modern industry for all the benefits it gives us, and it gives us a great many. We've allowed it to advance without asking some basic questions. We've allowed an experiment to move forward on all of us, and there are no controls. In some cases, we have populations that are isolated that don't have many of these chemicals, but for the most part, we're all in this together. Uh, some groups are more uh, battered by chemical insult than others. Uh, some, of course, are more vulnerable to others, that, to, to any exposures that they may experience. But uh, the truth of the matter is walking around, uh, I, I don't work in a factory. I don't work uh, at an incinerator. Uh, I, uh, you know, I type and talk for a living. And uh, I know that if we were to test my blood, I would have hundreds and hundreds of toxic chemicals in there just by uh, breathing air, drinking water, uh, eating food. Uh, that uh, even organic food in some cases has these chemicals in it because they're so pervasive in the environment. That's really the lesson that uh, I think we're beginning to draw, that until we start understanding how many of these chemicals are in us and controlling the exposures where we can, phasing out some of the dangerous chemicals that we need to phase out, until we start doing that, we're going to have a very difficult time dealing with some of these diseases and the increases that we're seeing in them. Right, and it's not just the food that you're eating, Ken. It's what it's wrapped in, stored in, and cooked in. Absolutely. No, there are, there's over a thousand chemicals that the Food and Drug Administration approves for use in packaging of, of food, for example, where they know that uh, some of the chemical migrates into the food. It comes off the packaging during storage or handling or usage. Uh, and um, uh, any one of those chemicals usually has a, a somewhat limited set of studies as to its safety, but the combination of them just from that one source of food packaging could be, could be something that uh, could be causing some diseases in some people. And uh, the, the question is, how do, you, how do you get a handle on that if you haven't really even uh, done a thorough job studying the individual chemicals? So we, we've, um, we've underinvested in that. We've assumed 
that uh, chemicals are not causing harm. We haven't looked at the vulnerable subpopulations. We haven't looked at things like uh, how they might be affecting our immune system, our hormone system, uh, the endocrine system. Some of these chemicals have very subtle effects uh, that weren't noticed until they were studied by scientists fairly recently. When we see those effects, we realize that they, they by, by affecting the immune system or the, uh, the, the hormone system in, in some other way, um, by affecting the endocrine system, they could affect sexual development. They could uh, affect all kinds of organ functions, uh, especially when the exposures happen in utero uh, or happen early in life. So uh, th these mysteries that we've allowed ourselves to be enshrouded in uh, are solvable by science if we put our minds to it. And they're solvable if we put in place a safety net that says before a chemical comes on the market or if it's on the market and it's planning, you're planning to keep it on the market, the manufacturer must show it is safe. And we don't do that now for industrial chemicals, tens of thousands of them. Okay. And we will talk more about this when we come back from break on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. 
And we're back with Ken Cook, who's the co-founder and president of the Environmental Working Group. And Ken, before we went to break, you were talking about all of the bodily systems that were involved in disorders, and we know that autism is a whole body condition. We know that the brain is connected to the rest of the body, and that to think that the brain is separated from the rest of the body and that autism is just a, a psychiatric or psychological or behavioral disorder is medically medieval thinking. So you were mentioning the endocrine system, and not a lot of people necessarily really know about hormones and endocrine disruptors. Um, you know, you mentioned the immune system, and uh, we know that the gastrointestinal system is involved in autism. But when we go to school, we hear about the, our muscles and our bones, but what are endocrine dis- disruptors? Well, these are these are uh, substances, and, and there are some that uh, uh, you know we, we see in, in nature, and some that we've shown in laboratory studies that um, uh, affect the the ability of the um, uh, of the body to uh, to manufacture some of the basic chemicals we need to regulate uh, normal function. And uh, as a consequence, uh, what what can happen uh, when you have disruption of the uh, of the endocrine system? Uh, you can have mixed signals being sent to various organs of the body, mixed signals being sent to uh, various physiological functions. Um, sometimes they're very subtle, just a few uh, parts per billion of an exposure at the wrong time uh, in, uh, in an organism's life can have a profound impact that later in life an even higher dose will not have. So we're looking at uh, instances where at very low levels, uh, you, you can have a profound, uh, a profound biological impact. And we know this, for example, a, a good example would be uh, anything that relates to the hormone system is, is often uh, active uh, at uh, far below a part per billion level. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, a, a fraction of a part per billion. Uh, for example, uh, birth control, uh, a hormone-mediated system, uh, birth control uh, drugs in this country uh, routinely uh, at doses in uh, the sub-part per billion range are almost 100% effective. Well, this tells you that our body is actually exquisitely vulnerable to all kinds of chemicals, and when you uh, expose the body, as we've done to in the last 60 or 70 years during the chemical revolution, to an exploding number of chemicals, it would be a little surprising if some of them, for example, didn't mimic natural hormones. And when they mimic them, they can trigger certain reactions in the body, uh, some having to do perhaps in, in, the, in the womb with sexual development, some having to do with the development of, of organs, some having to do with uh, the onset of various diseases that might be related to the hormonal systems like cancer. Those kinds of uh, problems could be triggered by the body encountering a chemical it had never encountered before because it's only been on the market and in people uh, for a matter of uh, maybe uh, a few years or a decade or two. So what we're understanding now is this, we live in a chemical soup, all of us. And in the case of, of autism where the manifestation has been so dramatic, so uh, tragic, uh, so, uh, so absolutely enraging for anybody who uh, is, uh, has, a, has a heart, <laughs> um, on the one hand we see that this has uh, taken place precisely during the period of the chemical revolution when we would wonder uh, rightly whether there is some link. We also see, and, and again, uh, this goes back to the theme of your show, Terry, there's reason for hope because if we can begin to understand and break some of these exposure and genetic vulnerability links by stopping the exposures, then we have reason to believe that 
moving forward, we'll begin to reduce the incidence of, of autism and other diseases. But we just have to we just have to invest in that science, and we can't assume that chemicals are innocent and let them onto the market until proven guilty. We should reverse that burden of proof. Chemicals should not be allowed on the market until they've been exhaustively shown to be safe. Right, and again, I don't think that we can deflect uh, from looking at chemicals by following some sort of genetics-only agenda. It gets very confusing. You know, so many parents of children with autism uh, saw that their perfectly fine children regressed, regressed into yes. autism. And but there are there are a few parents uh, I talk to who say, "Oh, there was something going on," you know, from the beginning. And what I what I often ask them is. Well, did he get a mercury-containing hepatitis B shot on the day that he was born? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you have these prenatal chemical exposures or if you have um, an environmental insult, environmental trigger like the hepatitis B shot uh, that contained mercury on the day that you're born, it kind of confuses the matter. Yeah, exactly so. I mean, and I think, you know, we're coming to understand uh, that, um uh, we can avoid those exposures, yes. um, and we should have been avoiding them all along. I think part of the public health community's uh, the, the, the segment of it that's very defensive of, about vaccination wants to uh, make the make the case that they fully understood the implications of all these vaccines with the mercury in them at the time they started adding them in the early 1990s and increasing the number of vaccinations that took place. They didn't. Um, it was a, it was an oversight, and unfortunately. We still haven't gotten to the bottom of this mystery to find out exactly which types of children with which types of genetic predispositions exposed to those chemicals might have as a result manifested autism. But the fact is we weren't thinking about these exposures. We weren't thinking about vulnerable subpopulations at that time. We were thinking about population-wide need to prevent disease. We were thinking, unfortunately, about averages. Average child, average disease, average exposure, and in all of that, you lose the important thing that we're all different. We're all unique. Uh, we know that we don't want to give any baby aspirin because they're all vulnerable to that. But some babies are much more vulnerable, for example, to lead than others. We don't want any child to be exposed to lead, but some kids with fairly low levels of lead poisoning can really have a dramatic impact. Well. What's going on is that they are probably more vulnerable for reasons we don't fully understand. They can't metabolize lead. Uh, they're uniquely, uh, their, their systems uh, have a, a propensity to utilize that lead in a way that's especially damaging. Again, we're all unique. That's the basis on which we need to start developing our system of, protect, of public health protection with respect to chemicals. We need to start with the fact that we're all likely to be a little different from everybody else which groups have patterns that would suggest uh, a genetic vulnerability to a specific set of toxins. Those, that's the way we need to go in, in protecting uh, pu- public health, not thinking about broad averages, not thinking uh, uh, about uh, what happens to an average child with an average dose. We need to be thinking about um, a much more sophisticated uh, uh, set of criteria for determining what might be risky and what might, might be safe. Right, so it sounds like it wouldn't be a good idea to play Russian roulette with uh, mercury-containing flu shots for pregnant moms. Of course, yeah. Not, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. And um, do, do we, do we uh, want to consider ways of uh, perhaps uh, uh, protecting pregnant moms from the flu other than those uh, vaccines with the mercury in them? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, in, at least in, in the United States, uh, other Western countries, 
we can afford to do that. But um, but we weren't paying enough attention when uh, the, uh, uh, the sort of uh, the number of vaccinations began to increase so dramatically in the 1990s for for children and others. And now I think that we're seeing uh, a, a better understanding that there might be a risk. We're seeing some of those uh, some of those uh, vaccines delivered without uh, thimerosal preservative. So we've made some progress there. But what was the price? What was the price of not knowing it ahead of time, and what was the price of not having a safety net uh, in that uh, dimension, as well as with respect to industrial chemicals? What, what was the price of not having that in place at the time? We've been lazy. We've uh, we've let things go. We've not uh, not paid attention to some very basic things here, and science that's emerging now tells us that we've paid a pretty significant cost for that. Well, the price is tragic to children and families. And uh, that's the most important thing. And then the price will also be catastrophic in terms of the economy. I remember the Environmental Working Group. You were talking about subpopulations, vulnerable subpopulations. Ken, the Environmental Working Group had a paper overloaded, New Science, New Insights about Mercury and Autism in Children. And this featured the work of Dr. Jill James. Could you please tell us about this? Yes, this is a a research project that we uh, produced uh, by... um uh, two of our uh, researchers at the Environmental Working Group are Renee Sharp and uh, Richard Wiles, our executive director. Um, and basically, we uh, we were following the work of Dr. James for some years, and, and her thesis was that uh, that there was a, a metabolic impairment or biomarker in autistic children that strongly suggests that they would be susceptible to the harmful effects of mercury and maybe other toxic chemical exposures. Uh, and what happens is it's, a, uh, it, it's sort of an imbalance. There's a, a, uh, a substance called glutathione in the body, and it works to basically keep in check potentially destructive uh, processes, oxidative stress, they call it, that can be caused by just normal circumstances or by environmental contaminants. Uh, children on the autism spectrum uh, showed that they had a significant impairment in any number of ways that we measure the body's ability to maintain a healthy glutathione defense system. So if uh, children who uh, are genetically uh, predisposed to have uh, difficulty with maintaining a healthy uh, glutathione defense are exposed to uh, toxic chemicals that can overwhelm the weakened defense that they have, you could have an elevated risk of, uh, of, of autism. We know this for uh, lots of diseases. If someone is immune compromised, you want to uh, take uh, special care. If you uh, ha- are HIV positive, if you have AIDS, if you're a cancer patient recovering uh, from uh, chemotherapy, there are all kinds of steps that are taken to protect you because of your weakened immune system uh, from getting sick. Uh, and when we, when we do that, we do that because we understand very well that there is a, a metabolic basis for understanding that your, your body doesn't have the defense mechanisms it should have. Uh, maybe it's been uh, as a, a result of uh, a treatment you've had to undergo to deal with cancer. It doesn't really matter. The principle is the same. We need to understand the defense mechanisms in the body, how they differ from one group of people to the other, how some people might come up, start, start off life with a less robust system than others. Stands to reason, right? And in those cases, we want to make sure that we don't have exposures uh, for the, exactly the kind of toxicants that that weakened defense system uh, is going to make the, the, the person vulnerable to. And so. That was the the basis of our review. Dr. James has done some really impressive work 
uh, over the years, and uh, this was a good example. And so we devoted a, an entire uh, uh, paper ourselves to it, and uh, Dr. James is a uh, uh, hope you can have her on your program at some point because she is just a, a brilliant researcher. She absolutely is. And for to hear about more of the good work from EWG, the Kids Safe Chemicals Act, we'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. JackLalane.com presents Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLane and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLane, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Well, Ken, we know that there's a Toxic Substances Control Act that hasn't really been effective in protecting children, born and unborn, and we know that EWG is working on a Kids Safe Chemicals Act that's going to be fantastic. Why don't you tell us about this? Well, the, the, the basic problem, the reason we read about these toxic chemicals, uh, these, these scares practically every week in the newspaper, the reason we're finding these toxic chemicals even in, uh, in babies uh, in the womb is because we have this very weak law, the Toxic Substances Control Act. First passed in 1976, it is the only major environmental law that's never been modernized and updated. This law is so weak that when uh, the first President Bush tried to use it to ban asbestos, which we all know has signature clear diseases associated with exposure, uh, he was un- unable to because it was challenged by industry and court and, uh, and, and, and the ban on asbestos failed. We, in fact, we're still debating uh, a ban on asbestos, if you can believe it, uh, in the current Congress, uh, that's going to we have to reintroduce the legislation. So this is a very weak law that basically uh, assumes an innocent, uh, a chemical is innocent until proven guilty, puts the burden on the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal agency that administers the law, puts the burden on the EPA to prove that a chemical uh, is unsafe, 
uh, and uh, gives them very limited tools at EPA to gather the information they need, the studies and so forth, from industry. What we're doing instead now, I think, is talking about a new era that's about to dawn. There's a lot of interest in the Kid Safe Chemical Act. Uh, this is a revolution in thinking about how to deal with toxic chemicals. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons it's revolutionary, Terry. For one, it basically says uh, we have to assume that chemicals are potentially causing harm, if not definitely causing harm, and prove their, uh, require the manufacturers to prove they're safe before they come on the market. We shouldn't require the, the opposite uh, to have the EPA prove that something's dangerous. Secondly, uh, what we're saying is in this law, and, and we're hoping it does become law uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, that the chemicals we should be looking at first to see if there's a problem are the chemicals that show up in people, specifically the chemicals that show up in umbilical cord blood. Those are going to be presumed to require very strenuous safety testing if they do show up in cord blood, if babies are exposed in the womb uh, before the chemical would be continued on the market or allowed on the market. Uh, this bill has been sponsored in the Senate by uh, Senator Lautenberg of New Jersey, Senator Boxer of California, and many others in the House. Uh, it's been uh, Congressman Henry Waxman. Uh, and uh, these are all great champions who are very concerned and very well-versed in the need to deal with the fact that we have toxic chemicals coming onto the market or, in some cases, on the market for decades that we really don't understand the human health risks of. And so this law is designed to try and fix that, and it's a very exciting development. Finally, we've got Congress willing, after over 30 years, to take a fresh look at an old law that should have been modernized long ago. Just imagine how much we know today that we didn't know in 1976 about toxic chemicals in our health. Well, this law, and I would encourage people to go to our website, www.ewg.org. There's a button there for the Kids Safe Chemical Act gives you a lot of resources to come to your own understanding of what we're attempting to do, uh, what this law could do if passed, if put into onto the books. And we want to encourage everybody to take a look at it, chime in and participate and tell Congress we need to pass this, uh, this uh, into law sooner than later. You know what, Ken, and I've got to wonder logically that if babies are coming into this world with a prenatal toxic load, that that will make them even more vulnerable to even reduced amounts of mercury in vaccines or the aluminum that's in vaccines, and that's not genetic. That is from chemical exposures in the environment. Well, that's just right. I mean, the, the, the mysteries that are before us unnecessarily are, are, are innumerable, um, and the way to deal with it is to reduce the exposures. Uh, the way to do, deal with it is to, if you have any question about a chemical that shows up in umbilical cord blood or to which infants are exposed, any questions about that at all, uh, we ought to step back and say, do we really need this chemical in commerce? Uh, are there ways we can use it differently so that even though it is uh, still uh, contributing to the economy, the exposures are reduced or eliminated? Those kinds of basic questions we're not asking because we don't have a safety net that requires it to be asked right now. We basically have a, a fairly voluntary system, and everyone knows it. Uh, every independent study, just last week, the Government Accountability Office, the Congressional Watchdog Agency, named the, the, the risks of toxic chemicals to human health one of the main high-risk areas that the government needs to deal with in the coming years to repair uh, a safety net that is so full of holes that we are unnecessarily risking uh, the health of uh, literally millions of Americans. 
uh, every year. And so uh, I'm very encouraged that with uh, uh, the Congress we have coming in, uh, the leadership behind the Kids Safe Chemical Act, Lautenberg, Boxer, Waxman, and many others, and with the new administration, uh, we'll have uh, a fresh look at this problem, and I think we'll see some serious momentum. So, Ken, please tell parents what they can do at home and for their families to protect them. There, there are an awful lot of things we can do. Uh, what we recommend is that people first come to our website, ewg.org. There are lots of tips for parents there to reduce toxic exposures. You can uh, very easily reduce the number of pesticides in your diet, not just by buying organic, which we encourage people to do, but if you can't find it or afford it, there are lots of other fruits and vegetables that are very nutritious, and the way they're produced, even in conventional agriculture, are low in pesticides. Uh, you can avoid uh, certain types of fish that are high in mercury. That's listed on our site. Uh, you can purchase personal care products that have fewer toxins in them. We have cataloged over 27,000 personal care products, makeup, shampoos, the whole gamut. We've categorized all of the chemicals in those products uh, for their toxicity. Shop for the safer ones. Um, all in all, there are lots of resources out there where you can reduce some of your exposures. Look under your sink and get rid of the, some of the cleaners that you don't uh, really absolutely uh, feel are necessary or that you can find uh, by going on uh, Google. You can find non-chemical alternatives to get the same cleaning job done. But the, the, the big message that we provide to people, even as we're giving them this practical advice, Terry, is we can't shop our way out of this. Uh, we're going to need a government that steps up and recognizes that some people are more vulnerable than others to toxic chemicals, and we need a safety net that protects those people. And I happen to think that includes uh, the children that have been diagnosed on the uh, spectrum of uh, autism disorders. Uh, there's no question in my mind that uh, uh, a substantial part of, of that uh, a huge increase in autism is related to chemical exposures. We don't know exactly how much. We don't know exactly which chemicals. But let's start by reducing, uh, through government action, the types of exposures that are allowed to happen every day, perfectly legally. Let's start reducing those and uh, see if we can't find a, a, a much more effective way to protect our children uh, than, the, than the roulette system we now have of chemicals coming into uh, a child's life that, uh, that child happens to be perhaps vulnerable to them, that's unacceptable to me. Yeah, and um, even if you don't consider one person as vulnerable as the next person, at, at some point, given enough you know, poison, it's going to knock anyone out, and there's a, there are problems with fertility now, too. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I know that from my own experience in my own uh, family life, we, we, we had difficult difficulty getting pregnant, partly related to, you know, getting a late start, but who knows what the other factors may have been. Lots of uh, uh, couples having difficulty um, having a baby or caring to full term, a dramatic increase, in fact, in that, in that issue. Is there a chemical basis for that? Well, there, there might well be. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, a toxic industrial chemical. It could be something with respect to diet that, uh, that is going on. But we haven't, we haven't really been attentive to those types of possibilities in building our safety net for public health, and we need to be. If we're not, I'm afraid we're going to continue to see the, the very serious increases in so many uh, health problems, autism being one, cancer being another, birth defects, infertility, across the board. And what we really need to do is make sure that if we can reduce the types of chemical insults that might be elevating 
those health problems, making them worse across the population, that's the responsible thing to do, especially as we're entering into a very important debate on health care policy. We ought to be starting with a health care policy that deals with preventing these illnesses and uh, doing so in a way that, uh, of course, can, can, can still have a, a very robust economy. We, we phased out DDT, and the industry said that would be the end of food production. We phased out PCBs. Industry was claiming that we might not be able to have electricity because that chemical was used as an insulator. Uh, we took the lead out of gasoline, out of paint, and we still have paint. We can do all of this. We can invest our way to smarter and uh, more profitable industries, but we have to require that that be done and done soon. Well, Ken, what you are doing certainly speaks to the foundation of the health of Americans. Thank you for tackling this and for being a voice on behalf of citizens, both born and unborn. To our My pleasure. To our listeners, we are pleased that Ken Cook will be speaking as part of the Environmental Symposium at the Autism One 2009 Conference in Chicago on Friday, May 22nd. Please visit www.autismone.org for more details. My guests next week, Britt Collins and Jackie Olson, will be talking about occupational therapy for children with autism. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.